welcome everybody to the Breakline Arena. I am Sophia and I'm here with my partner in crime. How are we doing out there, folks? This is Kenny Vaughn. And today we are sharing such an incredible conversation with former Secretary of Defense, General James Mattis. And y'all, the insights that he drops. I mean, he has dedicated his entire life to protecting our country, to protecting our democratic values. And there's so much knowledge to just be soaked up. So Kenny, tell us a little bit more about General James Mattis. Yeah, so as I think about the arena, I cannot think of a single individual who is more emblematic Mm. of someone who was living for and fighting for the ideals of our democracy. Yes. And what I love about this conversation is I feel like it comes in such a timely manner. I know regardless of what side of the aisle you may fall on, all of us as Americans are thinking about democracy and what it means, what this great experiment means, what role we play as Mm -hmm. individual citizens. And I really think the wisdom and the insights that General Mattis provides from his perspective as someone who served in the Marine Corps, served at the highest levels, over 40 years of service, Mm-hmm. They are just invaluable pearls of wisdom. So we are truly in for a treat. The last thing that I want to mention is that General Mattis played an integral role in the initial stages of Breakline education. He really was a champion for the work that we were doing. He really pounded the table to make sure that this organization had an opportunity to make it out the gates in a healthy way. So I just think it is so fitting that he is one of the first conversations that we're able to re-release into the Breakline Arena podcast series. So folks, buckle up, hold on to your butts because you are in for a ride. And this conversation is gonna be moderated by our CEO, Bethany Coates. We actually recorded this in the summer of 2020. And like Kenny said, that time was tumultuous. It it felt very heavy and it kind of left everybody grappling with what does it mean to be an American and how can we all be better? How can we contribute to this democracy in the most powerful way that we as individuals can? And that's what you are going to be reminded of in this conversation. And it definitely feels as prevalent now, if not more than it did before. So without further ado, Kenny. Let's dive on in. My name is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. Absolutely delighted on behalf of our team to welcome you to this special event with General Mattis. We love spending time with our alums, with our current participants. It's also wonderful to have so many of our partners here today who enable our work. We're very grateful to you. And I wanted to also give a warm welcome to our guests and our family members who are here with us tonight. It's also particularly meaningful for us to spend the next hour with you because our country is grappling with a pandemic and nationwide protests in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And our community has been directly affected by these events. And we want you to know that we see you and we hear you and we're very glad to have you with us tonight. And General Mattis, we are thrilled for the time with you. And as we kick off, I wanted to share a personal anecdote. Many of you know that General Mattis has been an incredible champion for Breakline from the very beginning. And over the years, you've spoken in very warm terms about his well-known style of servant leadership. I witnessed this myself when General Mattis keynoted our Breakline Summit in September. He asked me to bring my 11-year-old daughter, Shaler, And this kid faced adversity early in her life and she used it as fuel to become a terrific athlete. I sent a picture of her winning a track race to General Mattis in advance of the summit so that he didn't worry about her health when meeting her for the first time. Well, when they met, he knelt down so that he could be at eye level with her, pulled out a copy of the photo and asked her to autograph it for him. The kid grew six inches before my very eyes. And I swear, if there had been a track, she would have burned a hole right through the thing. And this from a man who had most recently led a three million person organization. And yet he still found time to ensure that one little girl felt valued and encouraged. 
And in this time of upheaval and change, I really love thinking about that moment. It reminds me that making a difference in one person's life is always worth it. And each and every one of us has the power to do this. If we just start and stick with it, we will find ourselves building and strengthening individuals, teams, communities, and potentially our country. And so thank you, General Mattis, for that lesson and many others, and welcome back to Breakline. Well, thank you, Bethany. Thank you, boss, I call you when I'm working for Breakline. I still remember when you walked in my office was a few years ago, I guess five years ago now or so, and said you were going to do this, and uh, by golly, you did it. And I couldn't be prouder of you, the veterans, the families, uh, of the veterans. I just, I don't forget my debt to every single one of you. I never, will never forget it. I'm proud to have served with you. I have no regrets about that. I am reminded of what General Sherman said. General Sherman bid farewell to his army and he said, if you've been good soldiers, I know you'll be good citizens too. And I, I just really admire what so many of you are doing as you move out and do exactly what Bethany just summed up. Natty, to make a difference one person at a time. I, I kept that autographed picture, Bethany. She's going to go places. You know it, and I know it. I'm going to say I knew her when she would. Nobody knew her, and I'll have bragging rights at that point. But why do I bring it up? Because we live in an age, you know, some people call it the information age, and all we're coming out of the machine age, and yet the information age seems to have everybody in their houses at night looking at their own screen. And the need to connect with one another, I think, is more important than ever. And what I thought I'd do here, because the good part of what we're going to do this afternoon, this evening, is the Q&A, is talk for a few minutes and just remind myself and remind you of this great big experiment where we live. It's often raucous. We haven't always had it right in America. But thanks to our founders, we have an almost unique ability to get it right, even if at times getting there is, is pretty tough, pretty ugly. And I bring this up because a friend of mine, British soldier actually, wrote something here about freedom isn't free. Hardly have to tell that to you veterans. It takes strength and honor to save her, good men and women to defend her, and the bravery of all to keep her. Those of you here who committed so much were in your debt, and I, I know, like I said at the outset there, I get a lot of credit for what all of you did, and I don't forget who really did the heavy lifting, so thank you. In working this up with Bethany, I wanted to start along the lines of what she proposed about me always talking about America as an experiment. And the idea is that we come of age in this country and we think, well, of course America exists. Of course it's here. Of course it'll be here tomorrow. But that's not the history of democracy in the world. It was not the history of our own country. And sometimes if you go back to first principles, a clarity is brought forward as you consider where did this experiment come from? I mean, the oldest guy at the Constitutional Convention walks out into the streets of Philadelphia and is immediately confronted by a lady and who says, well, Mr. Franklin, what do we have? Is it a monarchy or is it a republic? And he replies, it's a republic if you can keep it. And, and you think, well, that's interesting. That's before the constitution was even basically ratified by enough states to make us a country. And yet when George Washington talks about America in his first inaugural address, he too talks about it's an experiment that's entrusted to the American people. Francis Scott Key held prisoner, held hostage on a British warship back in about 1814 or so, watching as the most powerful fleet in the world tries to pound Fort McHenry into submission. He asks a question about, does the flag still fly? Does the star-spangled banner still fly? He knew it could come down in front of that fleet. Abraham Lincoln talks about consecrating ground at Gettysburg. And he says, we're here in a great big fight to determine if a government of the people, by the people, for the people can survive or will it perish? I mean, he is very upfront about it. And yet today we don't hear those kind of words very often. 
And I bring this up because it's still an experiment. Uh, some people have likened it to a bank. If you want to take something out, you've got to put something back in. And this is why I never miss an opportunity uh, to talk with veterans, because there are so many things that I don't even have to say to you, never met you, and yet I do know you. I know that you're willing to put others first. I know that you have been through something where you had to devote yourself to something bigger than yourself. And because of that, this experiment does live. Behind that defensive line of those of you who served time in the military, who put your lives on the line, who signed a blank check payable to the American people with your lives in order to keep this experiment alive. There's an awful lot of just accepted between us that passes almost without a word when we get together. We don't even think to bring it up. It's just we know where we, we are at on this sort of thing. And so as we look at our role in this world, in this fight to keep this experiment alive, I think it's very important to recognize that you've had formative experiences that you should be very thankful for. People oftentimes say to me, thank you for your service. And I was an infantry officer and oftentimes most of your success and nearly 95% of your training comes at the hands of corporals and sergeants and staff sergeants and gunnery sergeants. These are the young guys in the infantry who take a young officer who's been trained, also by MCOs, and teaches them what they need to know for their grim skills to be effective on the battlefield. And from those young men, I learned a lot over what it takes to be a servant leader, to be a leader that serves others. And and that's what I really want to get at here, because we need that sort of leadership now in our country. And those of you who spent time in the military and have seen leadership, some of it good, some of it bad, much of it you just took for granted, you have got an opportunity to carry that forward as long as you get some help getting through the door. And that is the whole point behind what Ms. Coates has put together here. So as we look at this experiment, I was asked, does this perspective take on an added urgency right now? And I don't know that it takes on an added urgency. It takes on a sustained urgency. I think at times we take it so much for granted that the country exists and will always exist with all of its freedoms that we forget that we really have to talk about it, we have to pass it on. Let me give you an example. I was sitting in the backyard of a foreign ambassador, and I bring this up because I've often learned a lot about America from foreigners, because they look at it, and at times they look at it much more objectively. Sometimes they hate us, sometimes they love us, they often admire us. Sometimes right now, they're not quite sure what the heck to think. But this ambassador said to me, as we were talking about America, that's what he wanted to see me about as a four-star in those days. And he said, you know, America made the single most self-sacrificial pledge in world history. Interesting. I thought I knew something about America's history. And he said, you did it after World War II. He's kind of teasing me along, you know, see if I could figure it out. And I said, oh, you mean the Marshall Plan. He said, no, no. He said, the Marshall Plan. He said, three years after that vicious war, and there was America offering money and locomotives and factory expertise and everything to our enemies. He said, they were your enemies three years before. And to your friends and enemies, he said, you offered to help them get back on their feet. He said, that just shows how generous America is in spirit. He said, no. He said, the most self-sacrificial pledge was just a few years after World War II, you could have said to Europe, that's twice in 25 years you've dragged us into one of your wars and we're through with you. We're going with Latin America and Asia. We're going with Africa. We're going with the Middle East. But you're on your own with the Soviet Union. We're tired of your act. He said, instead, you set up NATO, he said, an attack on one is an attack on all, and you pledged 100 million dead Americans in a nuclear war to protect democracy in Europe that had been destroyed by the fascists and the war against the fascists in order to free it. 
it took a foreigner to explain this to me. So if you want to see an example of servant leadership on the international scale that eclipses all other pledges in history, you may not find it in the textbooks we use to teach American history today. It took a foreigner to teach me this, but there it is. But then you can drop that same sort of putting others first. If you remember those three words, you know and I know the best leaders you saw in the military put their troops first. That's all there was to it. They didn't do it out of a sense of martyrdom. They did it out of a sense of pride. They didn't do it out of a sense of, gee, I got to do this. They did it because they thought, this is why I joined. And that sort of leadership is infectious. And do we need it right now in America? You're darn right we do. And I'm going to be real blunt here for a minute. I think we need you young people to study. I think we need you to work and to listen and all that. But you need to start running for school district. You need to start running for city council. You need to do your homework. You need to be humble. You need to listen. But you need to start stepping up with your brand of leadership just like I saw in the Congress. It was interesting that the people that I saw most willing, almost instinctively willing to work across Republican Democrat party lines were the guys and gals who'd been veterans in the current wars. It was a very instructive period for me when I went back to Washington for a couple of years as the Secretary of Defense for two years to go up on Capitol Hill and see that sort of servant leadership right there in Congress, Republican and Democrat going out and having a beer and burger. The idea was to work together. I'm not certain when you look at the greatest generation that came home from World War II. Remember, they'd been through the Depression growing up so bad that 20% of the boys drafted into the Army had to be fattened up just to go into training. They'd been malnourished. And they'd been through a war that killed hundreds of thousands of their buddies, tens of millions of people. And they looked around and said, it's a crummy world, whether we like it or not, we're part of it. Remember, we're part of it. And they put together the United Nations because it was so obvious we had to work with the rest of the world. It was never designed to solve all the problems. We put together Bretton Woods so that people who lost hope wouldn't have to turn to a fascist named Mussolini and listen to his lies that we put together in, under Bretton Woods. You know it is the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, lenders of last resort that would permit people who'd lost hope to get money, start creating wealth, and give their kids a better future and not listen to the demagogues and that sort of thing. We put together NATO, as the Australian ambassador of the United States taught me, as America did their role there in the Marshall Plan. But we did all this create kind of like a garden. And you need to keep weeding it, fertilizing it, watering it. And it's not a perfect garden. No garden is. But you got to keep working at it. Uh, because if you don't, it'll get all weedy and overgrown. It'll no longer deliver. You'll no longer have anything to harvest from it. So for you young folks, servant leadership means that you put others first and you try to make every day exactly what Bethany just said, one-on-one, -on -one, small groups, your team at work, your family, your school district, your local community, you just keep putting others first. It's, a, it's actually a lot of fun, and it is all about leadership. Leadership by example, leadership by according to your own personality. Don't try to be someone else. But at the same time, adopt ideas. You know, I was asked, what does, what does servant leadership look like? And so I go through history, I go through books, I had it taught to me, but it's hard to beat George Washington's approach. And George Washington's view is almost monotonous. It's very straightforward, but how did you stop and think about it now? How did he, with the French Army and Navy's help, how did he create an army that was disciplined enough and trained well enough to confront the British Redcoats, the best army in the world, Matter of fact, it would humble Napoleon a few years later. How did he do it? You know, we're part of a democracy. Even then, we were independent-minded. Believe me, Delaware watermen did not want to take orders from haughty, sophisticated-appearing Virginia planners. And people from South Carolina had a lot of suspicion about those guys in Boston because what normal people 
and talk like somebody from Boston. You know what I mean? So how did he put all this thing together and make it work? How did he get people that independent minded to believe in discipline and subordinate themselves to their, the orders that were being given? How did he do it? And it's, if, as you go through examples of him, you'll find it is very straightforward. He would always listen to others first. He was a very, very acute listener. And he would listen to them and he would do it, my fine young folks, not with the idea of listening just long enough, say, now I disagree with you. He would listen to them with the willingness to be persuaded. Think about that today, just that one thing that he did to start his leadership style, listen and be willing to be persuaded. Maybe even accept that once in a while the person you disagree with might be right. And he would learn from them. And by listening and learning, he would be showing respect. I used to tell my officers at U.S. Central Command, where, by the way, we had 77 nations represented on U.S. Central Command. And I'd tell my U.S. officers, not all the good ideas come from the country with the most aircraft carriers. You have to listen and learn from others. Next, you help them. That's the next step of leading. So you listen to them, you learn from them, but you're looking for ways to help people too, because that's what leaders do. They're not there to be burped by a dozen people every day and everybody stand up and they walk in a room. They're there to help. And then after you've listened to them and learned from them and helped them, then you lead. And that is why he was able to put together a revolutionary army that could defeat the British and give us this great big experiment that we call America. So when we talk about leadership, it's really about your force of persuasive personality. And nothing is more persuasive than the example you find young people set. The only reason I stuck around that low paying outfit for 40 odd years is because I just love being around you all. I didn't like a lot of the jobs in the military. I learned to hate minefields at a very young age and I didn't care for having to put on my gas mask. You all know what I mean. But good golly, to see young Marines who are willing to probe their way into a minefield looking for something they didn't want to find just so that their buddy and them wouldn't get blown up. I love being around them. And for the pure joy of being around you all, I stayed and I learned more and more about leadership. My idea from my view of leadership was to be a player coach. I wanted to know enough that I could carry the packs, I could fire the machine gun, I knew how to patch a wound, I knew how to use communications gear and call for medevac helicopters, artillery support, air support, but I wanted a coach in order to be better every day. And I started by finding out their hopes and dreams. I wanted to know their social goals, I wanted to know their physical fitness goals, I wanted to know their education goals, I wanted to know their financial goals, and then figure a way to help them. Because the more you know about somebody, number one, it's harder to dislike somebody when you get to know them. It's really freaking difficult. But number two, you realize you're hanging around with some great people. And if we start there, and if you have to get into an argument with someone, if you can start by listening to them so closely and studying their position, that in fact, you can articulate their position as well or better than they can, and if you hold off arguing until you're at that point, instead of just arguing because they disagree with your position, then you'll find a lot more common ground as a leader. And a lot of leading is finding common ground for people to go forward. You'll hear the words command and control, and even in industry, I hear it a lot. And I was brought up in the Marine Corps where we did not use those words unless we were in the joint environment. Within the Marine Corps, officers are taught to use command and feedback. The whole idea is that we don't want a whole lot of control. Part of it's because we're a naval force, and you can't do a lot of things with a naval force that is based on control. Too many things go wrong between the water and the beach. Too many things go wrong when your back's on the beach, that sort of thing. You've got to trust the two things, initiative and aggressiveness of the youngest people out there. Those two things will save you. And so what you do is you set up feedback loops. Now, what does this look like? Why am I talking to you about this? When you start leading, it can be a four-person software development team in the Valley. You wanna leave room for people to give advice 
to do as much as possible what they sense is their responsibility to improve whatever is going on. If I was to put it in musical terms, I'd put it this way. If I'd been Mozart, you can all laugh at that, fat chance I'd ever be Mozart. I couldn't sing or dance. That's how I ended up in the infantry, okay? But if I'd been Mozart, I would have written that music and left out three quarters of the notes because I'd have given just enough notes to guide someone along and then let him or her put in the other notes and just see what came up. And this is an original thought. I was down one night doing the sort of thing I'm not supposed to glamorize in front of you young folks in New Orleans. And I watched people come in with their horns. And on one occasion, someone who had never played with the others obviously came in and improvising together, nodding to one another. He was soon playing as if he'd been with them for years. I thought, wouldn't that be something if leaders could integrate like that others into teams? I don't care if you're an operating room nurse, uh, and you're the doctor, and she says, I want this to happen today, and say, this patient's going to walk out of here alive, and the cancer's going to be gone. And then people are working together. They know how to do their individual jobs and working to help each other. But the point I bring up is that command and feedback releases people's energy and initiative. And the more you command and control, the more you tighten. Now, some things you've got to be very, very controlling on. And I realize that. You have checklists when you're going to take off in an airplane, and by golly, you go by the checklist. But there's a lot of times in our lives where we can open the door to initiative and aggressiveness. And I think this is what you do to empower people down below you. You don't tell them everything. It's as important what you leave out of your orders, your instructions, as it is what you put in. And if you remember that, you keep from basically making little clones of yourself. And nothing is more boring, and I think ultimately more hurtful to an organization than to turn out some regimented workforce. Now you need a disciplined workforce. Certainly you need a disciplined workforce, but you don't need a regimented workforce. And part of this too is as a leader, you have to know the difference between a mistake and a lack of discipline. And here is where we really go wrong with a lot of young people today. I made a lot of mistakes. I made so many mistakes. You know, I had an army major come see me when I, I, I teach down at Stanford when, when the schools open. And I'm down at Stanford, and this army major from Command and Staff College comes to see me at Fort Leavenworth. And he comes to see me and he says, he's, he's studying my career. I said, son, you got to get out more, you know, because it's pretty boring, actually. I, I was retired by this point, obviously. He said, do you realize that you got in trouble at every rank? You either got a letter of admonition or a letter of caution or you got chewed out. Or He said, it happened at every single rank except one. I was a little miffed. I said, how did I miss one? You know, I mean, how could that have gone so wrong? Here's my point. The Marine Corps, every time I made one of those mistakes, they promoted me. And I made some real doozies. I got on every 15 minutes on CNN, you know, that sort of thing, when you really screw up, you know, and, but they promoted me because they knew that I was learning what right looked like. It was not a lack of dis. I was trying to do something. And I think that most of the time when people are trying to do their best, if they disappointed me there and made a mistake, it was probably I didn't make clear my intent, my vision. In other words, look in the mirror, my coaching was not sufficient to guide them. On the other hand, if it was a lack of discipline, that was different. And there you have to make certain as a leader, not only what you stand for and tell everybody what you stand for in the most positive terms, you do have to say what you will not stand for. Like I learned long ago that a unit that's got drug problems or has got DUI problems or sexual harassment problems is the same unit that on the battlefield will have fire control problems and will not do its rehearsals right and its orders will be lacking. In other words, you either lead a disciplined life in your commitment to being your best or you don't. It's very, very hard to turn it on in one part, turn it off in another, and then not have it go wrong. So what you do is you discipline yourself you always run the ethical midfield. 
That way, if you step out a little bit, you're not out of bounds. If you start running the ethical sidelines as a leader, you're human. Once in a while, you're going to make a mistake. We all do. And now you're out of bounds. And now you've messed it up for your family, for your reputation, for your firm, your corporation, whatever. And, and you don't want to do that. So steward leadership, servant leadership is also setting an ethical example, but not one that says a mistake is fatal. It's not fatal. You know, you're there as a leader to take the heat for that person, that young gal who was using her initiative, that young guy who was using his aggressiveness and trying to do the right thing. Okay, they messed up. Well, believe me, uh, by the time you get to my color here, you've messed up a whole lot. And you just make sure, too, that you don't get people to a point where they always have to back brief you. You know, have them back brief you just enough that they're confident and you're confident they know what they're doing. Like, I used to do real careful orders. And an Army general took a bunch of us aside when we made Colonel 06, captain in the Navy. And he said, you're never going to be a direct leader again. It's always going to be filtered now. It's over. The fun is done. You're going to have to be able to put it out in writing very clearly, your intent. But he said, also, be careful what you ask for, because you can take responsibility from someone not meaning to. And what did he mean? For example, if someone was going to brief their entire order to me, then whose order is it really? Is it theirs? Or, or do I say something? Do I smile? Do I frown? Do I shift my feet? When I got the colonel and general, I'd only let my subordinate commanders brief me on three things, their communications plan, their medevac plan, and the scouting and reconnaissance plan. Their medevac plan, so if some of their lads got knocked down, we could get them out. Their comm plan, so I knew we had ways to get a hold of them if they needed help. And then reconnaissance plan, so that I knew they'd done their best not to walk into an ambush. I would not let them brief me on the rest because I wanted it to be their plan. And so there's how you empower people down below you. Now, that doesn't mean you give them benign neglect. You show up, you go out with them, you go with them on patrol sometimes, you listen on the radio, you listen for their voice and how do they sound? Do they sound like they got confidence and they're under fire for the first time, that sort of thing. But what you don't want to do is say, I own all the leadership and I'm not going to transfer any to somebody else. No, you're going to transfer as much as you can because the youngest ones who feel like they're in charge are probably going to be the ones who return the most on that confidence. I was asked too about what books do I read repeatedly on leadership? And you'd probably have to look at what specific effort are you doing? Like if for me, where I have never, I had the privilege of fighting many times, uh, young folks, and not once in an all-American formation. It was always in an allied coalition kind of situation, every single time. I've even fought alongside the Syrian army. How's that for showing how old I am? But my point is that I had to also have in my mind, how do you lead troops when you don't have any authority over them? I mean. I didn't command them, and yet they were part of the force, and yet they belonged to their nation. Kind of touchy, you know? We do the same thing. We've had our troops in the field at times with other nations' forces and said, no, no, we command Americans. Nobody else does. You have to do it by persuasion. But there's a lady, MMK, who wrote a book called The Far Pavilions, and it's about a young kid who is multi-ethnic, and he, he is comfortable in various religious circumstances, he's comfortable in the British Army, he's comfortable in the Irregulars. It's probably as good a leadership book as I could ever find. Yet in many cases, people say, oh no, that's just a silly love story. No, it's not. It's a great leadership book. Another one I carried with me and referred to much more often as I went higher in rank was Marcus Aurelius' Meditation. For one thing, it kept me from basically getting pretty torqued off at some people at times when you go up into leadership positions, you want to be really careful to stay in a position of helping to mend things, put things together, not drive people apart. Because sometimes, for example, 
if in a military role you're dealing with folks who are in a uh, political role, they can sense that there's polarities there. And your job is to reconcile polarities, not go off in your own corner and just ignore other people. I'll give you an example. In the military, it's anathema to put off a decision. And you know why. Some of you have been there. You know what happens when decisions aren't made. Yet the politicians, by putting something off, they may be able to find another way to solve the problem when right then they don't have one. So you walk into a room with military and civilian people, and you're coming from two different um, polarities, basically. So you've got to find a way to understand and work together. And I think, too, this is why so many of our former military guys and gals, the veterans up on Capitol Hill, are willing to work with each other across party lines. And these kind of lessons are there in the books that I used to read, and then I could apply lessons like that. I want to stop now because, Bethany, you ordered me to stop, so we have lots of time for questions, and uh, I, I always obey my orders when it's you, Miss Bethany. Bethany, hopefully that helps to talk a little bit about the servant leadership and the values we live by. Kenny, 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 I think we should pause for just a hot sec because Absolutely. General James Mattis is just dropping one-liners like it's nothing, you know, listening with the willingness to be persuaded. Yes, the, he's talking about command and feedback releases people's energy and initiative. I loved the part where he was chatting about, you know, the garden and how we all have this role to play very actively if we want to harvest something out of our joint society. Well, what I think what I'm impressed with most is just the depth of wisdom that he has on the history of our nation, what it is that it took for us to get to this point. And I think for me individually, I'm just inspired to go back and really peel back the layers of our nation's beautiful history. And yeah. I think what is most emblematic of this conversation to me thus far is just the sage wisdom that he brings to his decision-making process. Yeah, he is a scholar. He is most certainly a scholar. I mean, you can't see it on the podcast, but when we were recording this, he is sitting in his library. It is full. It is a full library. And I think, you know, that is one of the most amazing things about General Mattis to me is he truly is a student of the game. Mm. It's very transparent that he has spent a lot of time just really digging into the depths uh, of the complexity that is this American experiment. Yes, most definitely. And it speaks to his character that he, that he is so one, intellectually curious, but two, driven towards self-improvement, that he is constantly studying up to make sure that he is gonna be the best version of an American leader that he can be. So I think that we should listen to some more. Yeah, let's dive on right back in. Thank you so much, General Mattis. Really appreciate those words and questions are coming in hot from our audience here. And I wanna say also lots and lots of statements of thanks for joining us tonight, General Mattis. So thank you so much for being here. Also several requests for you to run for president just as an FYI. But the first- Bad Bethany, bad Bethany. The first question that, that I wanted to pass along from our audience, this is from Jay Warren, an Army veteran, and he said, last fall, you said you wouldn't publicly criticize a sitting president. What made now the time to speak out? And how do you feel about your decision to do so? Yeah, very good question. I thought that coming out of an administration, I had what the French call a duty of reserve, okay? In other words, I'd gone in to do four years. I've given it 100%. For those who think that, you know, it, it's easy, it's not easy. But it's also when you walk out of something like that and you lay it out publicly in a statement that lays out the reason for it so that there's no speculation. I think I owed that much. At that point, the door closed. And why? because I did not want to make it more difficult to those who are still on active duty to do their job. Department of Defense has a very tough job every day of the year. 
And that's been, that, that's part of Department of Defense. Every one of you knows that because at a very young age, you went in to that department and you put it on the line. I did not want to then become part of this scorching political rhetoric. And I chose to stay silent. I was lambasted for that, by the way. You'd, you'd love to read the, the hate mail by those who wanted me to speak out on various positions. And then there, there did come a point in Lafayette Square when I thought that the military was edging too far into something that we don't do in the U.S., and that is the military stays out of domestic politics. You all know about civilian control of the military, and I thought that that had to be reinforced. And so at that point, I spoke again. By the way, I turned down 34, I believe it is, requests for interview after that. I said, no, I've said all I'm going to say on it, but I thought it needed to be said then. What you have to do, ladies and gentlemen, is you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror. Some people are going to say you're good. Some are going to say you're terrible for it. You simply have got to ultimately satisfy yourself when it comes your time to make a statement. But, but I did stay silent as long as I could, just as I did the job as well as I could for as long as I could. Go ahead, please, Bethany. Thank you, General Mattis. We have another question from Colin Parker. And he says, thank you for your leadership, both in and out of uniform. How do we reclaim the founding principles of our union and heal the fractures in our divided nation? Yeah, you know, there's no surprise at all that a veteran would be asking that blunt question. I think that what we need to do is we need to look at each other and rediscover that kinship that fundamental friendliness between Americans. I was talking to a senator, an old senator, when I was leaving office as a four-star. I went by to pay my respects. He'd stood by the military year in, year out. And I asked him, I said, how you doing, Senator? He, he just didn't look good. He said, he said, you know, Jim, he says, there's no one I can go to lunch with anymore. Well, that was really something. He, he loved the Senate. He thought the world of, of the Senate in terms of what its role was. I think he was even having uh, trouble answering the question that you just asked here. I would go back to this idea that, that we accept that we may be wrong once in a while. We accept that people we disagree with could be right. I mean, even a broken clock is right twice a day, as my parents taught me. I think we need to go back to not scoring points and being happy about scoring points against fellow Americans in political debates, rather sitting down and trying to understand each other and knowing each other's position as well or better, as I said earlier, than they can articulate it and have the discussion then. But afterwards, make sure we ask them, by the way, how's your daughter doing? Did she get accepted at college? How's your son doing? I know he's got MS. How's his medical care coming? I mean, get back in touch with the humanity in each other and quit tar brushing everyone with one, one descriptor or another and see if we can find a way to turn this country over in better shape. If, if we call it the greatest generation that won World War II, and as Harry Truman put it, when asked what he was proudest about there, he said, we defeated the fascists and then we welcomed the Japanese and the German and the Italian people back into the community of nations. If we were the luckiest generation because we were raised by the greatest generation, I'm concerned we're not setting the example of kindness, of respect for each other, of listening first and understanding each other. And I'm not saying you give up any of your values. But I'm saying you at least listen, because most of the time we'll find that the guy we're arguing with, we've actually got some things in common with him or her, and they're worthy. They're not setting out to destroy the country. They're not terrorists. They're not enemies of the state. They just have a different vision, probably for how we get to the same place that we all want to get to in terms of putting the next generation on the right track with the same prosperity, the same freedom and the same life that we've enjoyed. 
and we were always getting ready. You know, a World War II Marine put it well. He said, the country didn't have to be perfect to be worth fighting for. We just had to always be improving. And that's our job. And remember, we're building a country here. I didn't say we built the country or we built the country. We're building a country. I mean, this idea that it's finished, that it should be all perfect, isn't the case. We're building it. It's very hard work. It's noble work, but it's hard work. And we need everybody to roll up their sleeves and do it. There's no one person that's going to ride into Washington and say, here, I'm going to solve this very much. We've all got to roll up our sleeves and work together and try to see each other in that light. And I think that's the way we heal the fractures and we work together because it's just too precious what we have to, to throw it over the side as if somebody else's view isn't even worth considering. Mm -hmm. Thank you, General Mattis. Steve Gonzalez is asking, how can we get to the point in our elections where the American people can choose the humble leaders we want and need rather than the lesser of two evils? Well, you know, I think it goes back to some of the last question, the answer to the last question, because democracy, when it goes into the election season, is about divide. You divide. And let me run against Bethany here. Okay, I'm right, she's wrong. I want you all to vote for me. And she turned around and says, no, Jim, I'm smart, you're dumb. Now, besides having some truth to it, I would just say that's divide again. And then it becomes, well, I'm right and you're crazy. Now, we don't always, that, that's not always real nice. And suddenly it gets down to, I'm right and you're evil. And we don't generally compromise with evil. So if we would start by looking at the issues, Keith, and just instead of, of just looking for the discontinuities, look for the continuities. I think we could find a way to listen better to each other. And when we do that, the people with the best ideas, the gal who's got a better idea for putting the school district together, the guy who's got a better idea for solving the traffic problem, will start breeding this locally and they come up higher. And it will only work if we then switch from election campaigning, dividing, and when an election's over, we bury the hatchet, we work together, we compromise, and we govern. Right now, we're staying in a perpetual election cycle. So the humble people you're talking about, Keith, are never coming up in that because the ones who are still running their election a year after the election's over, whether they won or lost and they're still just trying to raise money and do this sort of thing, they're not governing. Remember, elections take division, governing takes unity. We put together, thanks to our brilliant founders, three co-equal branches of government. And one of them has got a bicameral legislature. You cannot govern this country without compromise and collaboration. You cannot do it, it is impossible. So when an election's over, we need to move into governing and we need to all work together. It doesn't mean you surrender your principles. You can vote against the guy the next election too. But in the interim, this collaborative form of government, remember, was put together for a reason. After that nasty argument with King George III, we didn't want a government that was worked easy. It works hard. Our form of government is very hard. That's the natural part state of it. That's all there is to it. But that doesn't mean that if we could do it before, we can't do it now. We can do it if we would decide to compromise. And that's what I'd suggest, Keith. We get out of this constant election campaign mode, and when the election's over, we roll up our sleeves and we work together. And then if we have another election a little while, then we follow up and, and we fight again on that one. And yeah, once in a while, it's not real civil in the election. That's democracy, I got it. But remember what happened let me give you two examples out of the Harry Truman administration. Harry Truman was advised to do something. He said, no, because we got to consider this. And they said, well, why are you doing that? That's not what our party's for. He said, gentlemen, try to remember that I'm also the president of half the country that didn't vote for me. 
that's a president who got elected on very, very narrow margins. At the same time, there's a Republican in Michigan, a senator, and he would ask, why are you working with that doggone left-wing Truman? And Senator Vandenberg said, politics ends at the country's shoreline. When it comes to our foreign policy, our military policy, there's no politics. So there's two examples, one by the president, one by his political opponent, willing to work together in the same administration. We can do it if we decide to do it. And if some people want to remain in a state of perpetual outrage after every election, it's going to screw up this great big experiment. It's a great question though, Keith, thanks. General Mattis, I'm gonna rephrase this question to be a little more palatable to you because you keep turning down requests to run for president. So let me just slightly rework this. This is a question from Nick and he says, what are the top three things you would like to see accomplished at the national level for our country today? The first thing would be we return to this respect for each other. We stop the scorching rhetoric and, and scoring points against each other. The second thing would be that we have an honest discussion about government services and how we make sure that we are not growing the debt. I consider the debt, the growing debt, to be an intergenerational theft by people with my color hair. And I realize we had to take extraordinary measures because of COVID, I, I understand, respect that. But all the other years where we were borrowing more and more money and not taxing ourselves sufficiently is gonna transfer all that debt to you young people I consider that to be just gross irresponsibility. And the third thing, I think it would be to, to have a less militarized foreign policy. I think we've over-militarized our foreign policy. I believe that, that we need to make certain that America's values are demonstrated at home. And you know what I'm driving at here, we're all Americans, all creeds. What I'm saying is, you know, you and I get thanked for our service. The best response we can give people to thank us is say, you are worth it. We don't care who you voted for. We don't care if you're male or female. We don't care if you're black, white, brown, whatever. We don't care about any of those things. You're worth it. And I think we need to get back in those, in those three areas is I think where I'd, I'd put my emphasis right now, Bethany. But again, that, that's something that we can all do in our own area. That's something each one of us in our daily lives can do for one another, most of all, do for ourselves and transfer it to these young kids who are growing up. General Mattis, we have a question from Tondalaya Takapu, and she says, as an active duty member who took an oath to obey all orders, how do you serve under an administration that you feel is legally immoral? One point I would make to you all is about age. And I'm, I'm good talking about age because I'm older than dirt now, okay? When I was young, I wanted things to be right. I wanted things to be perfect. I insisted on it. And I, I'm not any smarter today, but I've been around long enough now to understand that if we can just keep things on the right trajectory getting better, I don't have to sink my teeth into the lack of perfection. I can move from what's working right and keep reinforcing those things. And I think that what you have to do is you have to remember that the human condition is not one of perfection. And so long as we keep going in the right direction, just keep the faith, hold the line, protect the experiment, and understand that in history, Americans didn't always have it right. I mean, that's, that's part of our history. And being honest about that is how we keep fueling our trajectory for the right direction because thanks to our founding fathers, we actually have the ability to get it right. May not be pretty, but just hold the line. Those of you in the military, we need you to hold the line because on our worst day, we have the ability to be better. Think of the kids in Hong Kong right now who know they have no chance to get better, none. Doesn't matter what they do, they can literally die in the streets 
and they are not going to get freedom of, of conscience, freedom of speech, or anything else from the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. And I can give you examples like that from all around the world. So on our worst day, when we're most raucous, at times when it's, it's wearing on you, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line, keep the faith, America will get better, and it will always be getting better. It'll never be good enough. We should never be satisfied with it. That's why America is one great big experiment that we can all give 100% to. But while you're in, just remember that it wasn't a lot of fun at Valley Forge either. And the day after Gettysburg didn't feel like much of a victory for the Union Army and the ones who'd survived it. But they held the line, so you hold the line. General Mattis, so just one last question here. In your book, Call Sign Chaos, you talk about the need to win only one battle for the hearts and minds of our team. They will win all the rest. Is there a corollary for civilians in America today? Well, we're taught that in the Naval service. It, it wasn't just the Marines where I picked that up. I mean, the person who actually taught it to me was the chief hospital corpsman. But I think the point I would make is that it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who said this so many years ago. He's one of the most articulate associate justices the Supreme Court's ever had. And he was an Army officer in the Civil War. Very tough time. But he said, as life is action and passion, it's required of a man or woman, I'm adding woman there because he was talking about his war, that they should share the passion and action of their time at their peril of being judged not to have lived. And I think that when you're in a leadership position, if you can always put yourself in the shoes, the boots of the person that you're directing, if you can understand the world from their perspective, you'll find that empathy is absolutely critical. Whether you're fighting a pandemic, or you're fighting on the battlefield, or you're fighting to keep your small florist shop or pizza shop open in a time of COVID, that if you can find out what it's like to be one of the workers at the, down at the very bottom, then you can find out that, number one, you probably have it better than someone else. I mean, people are asking, what do we do? What, where do we turn for leadership right now? How do we deal with winning the hearts and minds of people when the pandemic, for example, you can't even see it? You know, if somebody coughs in an aisle, and you walk through the aisle 12 seconds later and you get it or something. What, what do you do? The way I'd look at it is, how about the hospitals that have stayed open and the post offices that have stayed open? And what do you find in leaders of those nurses, those doctors, those people who run post offices? They're not there for the money. You can't pay someone, as you all know enough, to put your life on the line. You can't do it. You do it because of what's in your heart. And I think that if you work on the heart, if you work to build up the confidence, if you're honest when you don't know something, if you're honest when you, you recognize people tried but fell short, you, you can, in fact, cultivate the trust and win that one battle that you've got to have. And we see it being won every day all around us. And so I would look to those examples of the people who've had to remain open in order to give us these services. I mean, somewhere there's some people working on computers that have got us all connected right now. And they're sitting within six feet of each other. I hope they're wearing a, a bandana over their face. But somewhere out there is someone who literally put an awful lot of their health on the line so we could have this connection here today. And let's just see if we can look toward how do we show respect for each other in this country, in this world, in a manner that wins the confidence, wins the trust, and reduces the barriers between us. And you know, young folks, this is not, this is not unique to us. There are examples throughout history of where people have done this. I studied 
here recently looking at reconciliation in countries. I studied Mandela in South Africa. I mean, how did he take the hatreds of apartheid and how did he put together a country that came out of it so well? And it really comes down to his leadership. And then I studied Mannerheim up in Finland. He had to do it twice in his lifetime, once right after World War I, once right at the end of World War II. And how did they do it? And it has a lot to do with how do you listen to each other and learn from each other? And then how do you help the reconciliation? And then you lead. It's George Washington's way again, but practiced by each of those men unique to the circumstance they face. So I'm very sure that we can do this. Much of my confidence, I'll admit, is based on having been around young soldiers, sailors, airmen, coast guardsmen, and Marines, because by your willingness to sign that blank check, by your willingness to keep the faith when things are going wrong, I've seen Marines and sailors wrapping tourniquets loosely around their upper legs before they go on patrol in order that if they step on a mine, they could snap the tourniquet shut quickly, and still they walked out that gate on patrol. So I know that our veterans bring with them an innate leadership, innate empathy for others, that if we practice that, we can bring this country back together and certainly we can win the hearts and minds of whatever team we're on. And this isn't just me trying to give a raw, raw speech. I mean, I've seen it too many times. It's not only in history books, I've seen it on the battlefields and I've seen it in other places in our society where a lot of people are getting really heated. I mean, I get hate mail too. You all know that. You can't step out in the world these days without getting it. But just understand that even the people who are questioning your parentage in the most graphic terms, they care about the country too and try to find the common ground. Just keep at it. Remember, the only way you give up is if you conspire with those who want you to give up. Just don't, just don't give up. You've been through tougher than this, every one of you. Every one of you has been through tougher than this. So just roll up your sleeves and go to work. And if you got one more question, I'll take it, Ms. Bethany. General Mattis, well, I'm going to ask you to offer some final thoughts here as we wrap up. But while you think about that for a moment, I just want to share with everyone here that I've been very lucky to have ongoing correspondence with General Mattis for the last five years. And I was looking through some of those notes that we sent back and forth. And so many of them are deeply personal and meaningful to me. But I wanted to share one sentence, which feels very appropriate for the times that we're in. And he said, the only real victory is to be a better version of yourself day by day in service to what you hold dear. So I'd love to inspire every single person on the line today to live that guidance. General Mattis, any final parting thoughts from you before we sign off tonight? Well, thanks, Bethany, for everything over many years, for your leadership, your force of personality that when some people would not help you, you struck out on your own with all the initiative and aggressiveness that we could ever want in a leader. I would just want to close by saying there's nothing new under the sun, folks. Uh, Hemingway wrote or edited a book going into World War II where he put a lot of the best war stories, as he called it, into one book. And he said the reason he was doing it was he wanted that the young troops going off to war to know, he wanted them to know that they could face nothing worse than what the Union troops faced at Shiloh, at bloody Shiloh. He wanted to know that you can make it through. For all of you, don't think this is so unique that you've got to question yourself. Doubt your doubts. Don't doubt your values right now. Keep your values strong. Don't question whether or not you can make a difference. You're going to make a difference. And remember, in terms of serving something larger, uh, larger than yourself, you, you really took the same oath when you signed up to defend our country, our experiment, as the young men of ancient Athens, and they pledged to fight really for the ideals and the sacred things that they held dear. 
And really, that's what you did when you signed up to uh, support and defend that Constitution. And just keep the faith, my fine young people. Just keep the faith, keep working. We'll get better. We, we always do. And thank goodness we have the freedom where each one of us gets to do our part in that. Bethany, thanks uh, to all of you. And for all of you, forever grateful for what you did for your country. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, General Mattis, for joining us and for our Breakline community for participating. Love to see all of you. Looking forward to the next time. Thank you so much, General Mattis. Good night. Wow. I, I don't know about you, Sophia, but I, I literally have like goosebumps right now yes. because to hear the way that General Mattis eloquently just unpacked this American experiment truly, truly just gave me a deep respect for his lived experience. And I think yeah. one of the things that really stuck out to me was the commonality that he drew with the human condition, right? Like we all want the same thing at the end of the day, right? We yeah. all want to be safe. We all want to be prosperous. We all want to see our kids do well. Yes. And I think for him to really drive home that point in this episode is really something that's going to stick and, and hit home for me. Um, how about you? What did you, what were your thoughts? What was your, what was your major takeaway? Yeah. I mean, building off of that, you speaking and General Mattis speaking to the fact that we all want the same thing and it sort of has felt lately like it's been lost in translation, but in reality, giving other people the grace to make mistakes, giving them the space to learn is so incredibly important and not just so that we can be the best versions of ourselves, but almost the livelihood of our democracy depends on it, depends mm. on us being able to open our minds and our hearts to other people and sitting in our camps with our heels dug into the ground, as we have seen, is just not the way that, that we can progress. And if Mattis does anything, he gives us all a great big hug and says, Absolutely. bring it in. Absolutely. We can still do this. He's telling us, doubt your doubts, not your values. I don't know about you, but I wrote that down immediately because we know what our values are. So those well, are the things that I took away. I don't, I don't know about you, but I feel like that was an absolute roller coaster ride in the best way possible. Yes. If this hit home with you in any kind of way, can you please tell our listeners what they should do, Sophia? Oh, Kenny, I would love to tell the people what they should do. They should follow us on Spotify. They should like, they should subscribe because we are going to keep having conversations that are this important, that are this authentic, and that really get you in your feels, but also in your thoughts, most importantly. Well, folks, there you have it. Once again, this is Kenny Vaughn, the director of Breakline Apex, signing out from Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, thank you guys for joining us and we will see you next week.